This morning we're going to the book of Exodus again as we continue to travel. Well, not quite travel yet with the Israelites. They're getting ready to be sprung out of slavery, out of prison and, and uh, delivered to God. So let's pray as we go to the word that he would teach us this morning. Father, we thank you for just the miracles of life. We witness them through the birth of babies, through the healing of our ailments, through uh, the meals that you put before us every day. Lord, we're also thankful for the ministry of your word. It's a miracle that you would not only reveal it and give it to us on the, t- on the page, but also, Lord, that you would use your Holy Spirit to teach us and to give us understanding. There's no way that we could understand all this if you did not teach us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning. We pray that our hearts would be available for that teaching, that we'd be humble before you. But I pray that you would take my mind and my heart and my lips and have me only to speak what you've ordained for this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 7. And for no reason that is a, attached to this scripture, I just want to take a poll real quick because it is Thanksgiving week and we're going we're gonna to see what people's favorite pies are. Just because. Just because. Raise your hand if your favorite pie is pumpkin pie. We got any pumpkin, pumpkin pie people in here? All right, we got a few. More people. Hey, if, if nobody goes along with it, it's still good. You like it. How about apple pie? Raise your hand if you like a good apple pie. (laughs) Raise your hand if you like a good pecan pie. Or pecan pie. Did I say that wrong? Up in the north we say pecan. How about sweet potato pie? We got any sweet potato pie fans? How about chocolate pie? Oh, man. Some of you are raising your hands more than once. Both hands at times, I see. (laughs) Like that's... You got to raise your foot. You got to raise everything at that point. I raise a fork. That's what I raise. Um, any pies that I miss? Coconut pie. Oh, that's a good one. Blueberry pies, cherry pies. Oh, man. If, if those are all on the table this week, we're in trouble. Uh, we're going to need to do some running or something. But um, I just like pies. Pies are good. But what, what? Chicken pot pie. Now we're going savory even. We're going savory. Mincemeat pie, anybody? Blueberry pie. I don't remember, there was a pie that my uh, relatives used to make. It was some, some raisin and custardy type pies. Anybody? Sour cream pies. Anybody ever had a sour cream pie? It was, what was that? Shoe fly pie. By the name, I don't want any. <laughs> what is it? What's a shoe fly pie? <laughs> shoe, the, shoe away the fly so you can eat the pie. Okay, I got it. That is my... <laughs> That's good. You know, the thing about pies that are good, I, I love to eat them, but they always come out during celebratory times. And, and when we're celebrating, uh, it, it's always because we're reflecting on something good that's happened. It's like, oh, man, I'm eating this pie. I'm enjoying it now. But that's because something great and enjoyable happened in the past that has been good. There's just reason to celebrate. And so as we come into Exodus uh, later on, we're going to be talking about some of the celebrations and holidays that the Jews had. And all those, as they would have these holidays, were all hearkening back to a lot of these days that were going on when they as a country were being birthed. They were being extracted from their slavery and set free and delivered to God. So when they would eat some of their holiday meals, they were reflecting. And not only was it scrumptious as they shooed flies away from their lamb or whatever, their, whatever they were eating, they were remembering how good God had been. And remembering how God had been, it always had them look forward to how good God was going to be and continuing 
his word of promise to deliver them into the covenant, into the relationship that would last forever. And so eating a pie or eating a holiday meal is something to enjoy in the present, but it reminds us of the past and also draws our attention to continue trusting in the future. So this week, as you eat your favorite pie, as you raise your fork and shoo away the flies, uh, let's take an opportunity to join with the Israelites to remember how good God, God has been. Now, we've been looking at the story, how they've been in slavery in Egypt. God has appointed Moses and then also his brother as spokesman, um, his public relations officer, to go back in and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And they gave him signs. They gave him the, the, the rod, the staff that turned into a serpent. And so God, uh, Pharaoh's been able to see that this God is not to be messed around with, but his heart is hardened. That is, God allows him and helps him to continue to be stubborn. And we're going to find out a little bit more today why God allowed Pharaoh to continue to be stubborn. Because now, not only did he get the sign of the staff that was turned into a serpent, but now there's going to be more plagues that are put upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt in order to display God and his purposes in this. So we pick up the story. This is Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to do eight plagues today. Now, if we read this passage straight through, we'd be reading about five chapters or so. We're not going to read all those today. We're going to kind of skip like a rock through some of these plagues, tracing them through. But I'm going to give you homework this week, if you will, go and read through some of these passages and see some of the underlying things that are there. That's your homework for the week. But we're going to read through one whole section of one plague just to kind of get our feet wet, uh, wet, and then we'll skip through some of these others as we go. So here we go. This is chapter 7, verse 14 of Exodus. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, the Nile River, and take your hand uh, take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you've not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and the water in the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, but they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. 
So God tells Moses and Aaron, go into Pharaoh. You're going to meet him at the river. And with the staff that's in your hand, he's going to see the power of God displayed, whereby the Nile River would be turned into blood. Exactly what that was and what happened, we don't exactly know. It could take on a couple different scenarios. One, it could actually be blood that God would take what was water and changed its its molecules and all that into being blood. Uh, something that we would find in our bodies or uh, something of that was living. Another thing that could have happened because of the certain season that was going on in that time is that there was lots of uh, red, red um, sediment and stuff that would come into the Nile River along with other red algae that would kind of overwhelm. And if it had been a particularly moist season, a lot of rain and stuff, that would really overwhelm the, uh, the water and turn it into something that very much looked like blood um, and was represented in that way. So almost in the same way that we would look at the moon and say it's a blood moon. We don't mean that there's blood that's been painted on the moon or that it itself is a blood vessel that, or something pumping with blood. It just takes on the look of that same way the Nile might have had these natural things that are going on because God intended and had it do that through the the midst of the weather so that even in here when it talks about in the canals if you have all this dirt and sediment and different things that are overtaking the water it turns it into things that the fish cannot survive in they're dying it's stinking um some of this uh you would think well then how uh, in that verse uh, 19 it says that this was even happening in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone so if it's that that's going on how could that happen and maybe something over here if you look at the text in the Hebrew, the word vessel is not actually there. That's why some of you, when you have the King James Version, it has it in italics. That actually means something that's not in the original language. And so it talks about there being wood and stone back in the ancient Near East. Some of the language when they talked about wood and stone was actually a descriptor of saying out in the sticks, like being in Johnston County. So what it's saying is not only was the water being affected right there at the Nile, but the water being affected out in the countryside. It was happening everywhere where all this water was getting involved and it wasn't livable and fish were beginning to die. People didn't want to drink it. So whether it was blood or whether it was sediment, we don't exactly know. But what we do know is that God caused it through all that was going on. Pharaoh looked at it and was like, I don't care. I've been able to take my magicians by their secret arts and by manipulating things. They've been able to somehow reenact it. So I don't care. I'm not letting you go. But God, I want to I take a focus, not exactly how it happened, but why it's happening. I want you to, again, look real quickly in the middle of verse 17. This is what the Lord wanted it to do. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know I am the Lord. We have seen this over and over and over in this narrative that's playing out that whether it's to Moses and God needs him to have faith that God says, I'm doing this so that you'll know I'm the Lord or whether he goes back and shows signs to the elders of Israel and those people. He wants to show them why so that they will know that he is the Lord or now that he goes to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt and all these things are occurring. Why is the Lord happening? It says, by this, you will know that I am the Lord. I alone. So we're going to go through these plagues and different things that are going on to show how God is really going to cause them to know that it's him as the Lord and no other. It kind of reminds me the other night, um, Jude, by being an academic all star, had scored some tickets for us to the North Carolina basketball game. And I don't know if you're a Carolina fan or a Duke fan or a Wolfpack fan, doesn't matter. We were going to the game and uh, we had a fun time, but it was it was interesting because uh, they weren't playing another top tier team. 
they're playing a lowly, a lowly team from Tennessee that isn't ranked and hadn't won a game yet. So you kind of know how that was going to go. And they were running around there. North Carolina seemed to be able to do whatever they wanted. And after a while, it was just kind of getting silly. They were getting dunks. They were making easy passes. They were easily stealing the ball. And it started to remind me, you remember way back, and they still operate today, there was a team called the Harlem Globetrotters. You remember that team? And they would, the Globetrotters would come out, and they had all kinds of fancy tricks, and they could shoot trick shots. They could make fancy passes. They would actually do this thing where they would weave back and forth as a team. And pass the, they would start confusing the referees so that they would get dizzy. But the other team, the Washington Generals, were a team that were a bunch of, they, they were actually talented players, but they just looked like they were no good. They just should not be on the same court as the Harlem Globetrotters. And, and so through the tricks and through all the things that all the everything that everybody in the audience could see, the Harlem Globetrotters set them apart as a, a, a worldwide global team. There's no other team like this on the world in the world. So they would go about and and display their basketball talents and the generals, the Washington generals. They shouldn't be on the same court, except it was entertaining. That was the whole purpose. And it seemed like. This team from Tennessee shouldn't be on the same court. North Carolina, they got up to 108 points. Tennessee had 50-something. It just seemed the more they played, the distance grew further. The further the games go on in games like that, you can see a separation between the teams. And what God's going to do in the midst of these plagues is he's going to say, you, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians, and anybody else in all the world, any other king, any other supposed God, they do not belong in the same court as me. I am God and there is no other. I am the Lord. And so by these plagues, I'm going to make you know there is no other God. So in some of these plagues, he's going to go after some of the gods of Egypt. In a lot of these plagues, he's going to show that God has command over all nature. And at the end of the day, he's going to show Pharaoh, I have command over you. I have command over your heart and you cannot hold me back from doing what I want to do. We do not belong on the same court together. We're not the same. I am the Lord and the only. So let's roll through some of these plagues. And see what happens. Some of this could occur as a result of that sediment coming up. So the next one's about frogs. As a result, uh, this is maybe freaks some of you out. I know, I know uh, Shelly's not here today. She has a frog phobia. So she's pro- she probably missed this day on purpose. So she didn't have to hear about frogs. But uh, the next one was frogs. And frogs just overwhelmed them. To the, where they were everywhere. They were in, in their houses. They were all over. They probably found them on their pillows. In fact, um, this isn't always so separate from us. In fact, somebody showed me an article recently that we're actually having a a swarm of frogs that are overtaking parts of North Carolina as a result of Hurricane Florence. It kind of set up this perfect scenario for frogs to to be going crazy in some of the places out near the coast because what had happened was with all the rains that had come, it created these ideal puddles and ponds that had a lot of water to grow tadpoles. And so now all these frogs are just going everywhere that people have had them drop on their faces. Um, they're, they're, it's, it's bad. And so this was happening in, in Egypt, uh, maybe as a result of them having to get out of the water. And so they all come up into the people's houses. And I want to pay particular attention to why, again, God is doing all this. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. This is as a result of the frogs, why God is doing this. It says, um, tomorrow, Moses says, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 
Why is God sending the frogs? Not to just make Pharaoh uncomfortable so that he will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Well, after the frogs, Pharaoh still won't let them go. So next, we get a plague of gnats. We aren't quite sure exactly what those little insects actually were. Probably the closest things were probably something like a mosquito or a tick because the word that's being used means pincher. They were, they were pinching bugs, maybe like a noceum or something. I, I would go crazy. I don't like gnats, but most of the time they're just buzzing around my eyes. But those other ones that pinch and bite, I don't want anything to do with them. The gnats start to overwhelm. They're everywhere. The clouds are going crazy. Why would God do this? Look at verse 19 of chapter 8. It says, Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. So Pharaoh's own magicians who have been able to replicate some of these things, they're like, this is God's finger. Why is God doing this? He's showing that with his finger, he can just make gnats go out and take down a country and make it stall. People didn't want to be around. They're being eaten up by mosquitoes or ticks or gnats or whatever it is. We don't want anything to do with it. And the magicians say, God's showing by the power of his little finger. He can start having and directing his will upon our country. So the next plague, the fourth plague, is a plague of flies. Gross. These are the ones, uh, Pa John, that you swat away from your pie, right? So here come all the flies. Why did God bring all the flies? Verse 22 of chapter 8 says, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Now, real quick, let me tell you about Goshen. There was the land of Egypt, but when the Israelites had first come in and, and, and the early Pharaoh had blessed Joseph and the Israelites, he'd given them a bunch of great land over in Goshen as their own. And so that's where the people of Israel lived was in the land of Goshen. So it says in verse 22, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. So in there, he says, here's the other reason why I'm doing it. I'm going to show that it's not just I throw flies and I just they randomly go. I'm going to put them only on the Egyptians. It's only going to be in Egypt. My people down in Goshen, no flies. Why? Because I'm going to make a division. This over here is not of me. This over here is of me. It's the same kind of idea of being holy. My people are set apart. They are mine. I'm protecting them. In fact, the word that's used there when we read where it says, I will put a division between my people. It means to set a redemption. I'm saving them apart from this plague that is going on. Well, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. He's not giving in. So the Lord sends another plague. He sends one where livestock begin to die. So let me tell you some of the circumstances that are going on in the midst of this that causes the livestock to die. As the frogs come out of the water, as the insects begin to go, all those things carry different types of diseases. And there was one that was particular that would come upon livestock that was a, 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 a kind of anthrax. And they would get it on them and it would cause problems in the livestock. So this begins to go and, and, and cause death of the livestock. <clears throat> and so in chapter 9, verse 4, why? It says, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel <clears throat> and the livestock of Egypt. So again, part of the reason why is God is separating his people. He is saying, I am working on behalf of this people. These are the people I'm coming after. I'm going to redeem them. So not only am I sparing them, I'm also sparing their livestock. And, 
and the Jews' livestock did not get the anthrax. Uh, and, and so the next one is the plague of boils. The people, uh, it actually says here that Moses went over to the kiln. He picked up a bunch of soot and threw it in the air. And as it went out, people began to get boils all over their body. It was, it was super bad um, that everybody, all the Egyptians begin to get uh, affected by these boils and sores all over their body. Um, <clears throat> in fact, look at verse 11. It says, and the magicians could not stand before Moses <clears throat> because of the boils for boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So now the Lord is saying, hey, well, look, these magicians aren't like my Moses and not like my people. I'm going to take the people who try to act in the spiritual realm. I'm setting them apart. They cannot withstand the boils. They can try to get whatever they want from the pharmacy. Not going to help. They're getting the boils. So the magicians are like, oh, man, we can't even stand before Moses. So slowly the God is extracting and separating his his people along with him. After that comes a plague of hail. Uh, it became very bad. It began to um, really cause havoc on a lot of their crops and destroy a lot of things as the hail is coming down. So let's let's look why. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 9. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself. So he's talking about Pharaoh. It's really going to affect his heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it on yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So Pharaoh continues to have a prideful heart. Despite all the plagues, he continues to continues to try to contend with God. And God says, no. No, 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 I'm sending this hail, this plague, and this time it's going to affect you because now I've got to isolate you and have you know for sure that there is no other like me. But he's not getting the point yet. And so after the hail comes another plague. This one is of locusts. Now, locusts are pests. Some of you are farmers. Maybe you have grass, grasshopper problems, locust problems. Uh, locusts, they could eat as much as their own body weight in one day. So me, I can't imagine eating what I weigh in one day. Um, sometimes I, w- I would like to try with all that pie. Um, but we can't, locusts, they just eat everything. So they come into the land and they would just destroy everything. So what happens in this one, anything that the hail did not destroy, the locusts came in and destroyed. Nothing is left. So all the vegetation, all the crops, everything is just being destroyed by the locusts. Why? Let's look at verse 2 of chapter 10. It says this. This is actually for the Israelites. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And then later on in verse 3, it says this. Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, saying it to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So he's been doing it towards Pharaoh. He continues to not be prideful and not humble. But now this time he says to Moses, Moses, part of the reason I'm doing this is not only to show myself to Pharaoh. It's for this reason. In later years to come, when you're sitting at a holiday meal and you're eating your pie. 
You're going to be able to tell your son. You're going to be able to tell your grandson. That when the Lord came in to rescue his people, that he overthrew the Egyptians without the Israelites ever having to raise a sword. Never having to take up a battle cry. It was God coming in to defeat the Egyptians. You'll have witnessed how he brought the plagues. He brought the, the, the blood from the water. How he brought the frogs. How he brought the gnats and the mosquitoes. How he brought the flies. How he brought the hail and he brought the locust. How he killed the livestock. How all these. You'll be able to say, did you see how strong God was? The other night at the basketball game, there a few moments I made Jude take selfies with himself and I. Why? So in later years, we could look back and say, didn't we have such a great time at that game? Remember how North Carolina just throttled that team? We remembered what a great game it was and all that was involved and how much popcorn we tried to shove in our mouth. That was a great day. And we want to remember that. And the Lord says to the Israelites, you're going to remember these days. You're going to remember that this game was not even a contest, that I absolutely thwarted the Egyptians and you were there to see it. Go tell your son, go tell your grandson. This is going to be a story for all time so that all people will recognize this, that I am the Lord and there is no other. I want you to know it. I want your kids to know it. I want Pharaoh to know it. I want the Egyptians to know it. I want every person sitting in Unity Church, November 18th, 2018, to know that he is the Lord and there is no other. And we are still telling the story of the plagues because God wins. It was no contest. It was like the Globetrotters. It was like the Tar Heels. It was absolutely a defeat and there was never a chance by the enemy. But Pharaoh keeps coming in and he keeps saying, well, maybe. In the conversations as you read this week doing your homework, you'll see that at times Pharaoh's like, well, Maybe, no, I'm not going to let you go. And at one time, he actually says this. All the men, they can go, but the children and the livestock, they have to stay behind because he was, he was going to try to make sure that they came back. And Moses says, absolutely not. The men are going, the women are going, the children are going, the livestock are We're all going because God has called us all out. And Pharaoh's like, ugh. And he refuses. His heart is hard, and he continues to be stubborn. Why does God continue to allow him to be stubborn? Why? Because God is continuing to increase the gap. God is continuing to allow Pharaoh to tie his own noose. Pharaoh is going to be defeated. But every time he hardens his heart after a, after a plague, you know what's happening? Now, I've never tied a noose, but I've seen one. And it's usually not just a ring at the bottom with one knot. What do they usually do? It's knot after knot after knot after knot. And it kind of runs up the, up the line, right? What Pharaoh is doing every time he refuses and every time he hardens his heart and says, no, I won't let people go. God is allowing another knot on the noose that one day soon is going to ring up Pharaoh when he and his entire army dies in the Red Sea. God is showing there is no one like me. There is no king like me. There is no nation like my nation. I am doing this work and I'm going to show it with great strength upon the Egyptians. This had actually been prophesied over 400 years earlier to Abraham. At that time, God said to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to become a great nation. That nation is going to go and have to be in servitude to another nation. 
but I will defeat and I will judge and I will punish that nation and I will deliver the people back to this place that I have promised you. Abraham, I am in a relationship with you and I am promising you I will do that. So fast forward 400 years to when it's actually taking place. And the people could say, man, look at the promise that he made to Abraham and he ful- he's fulfilling it in our days with these plagues. Someday we're going to be eating pie with our sons and grandsons, and we're going to remember how great our God is and what he did to rescue us. Because God did an amazing thing to redeem and pull his people away from slavery. And what his intention was, wasn't just to bring them out of hard work and a hard life. but was to bring them to himself in a relationship whereby he could save them by faith. They would trust him and believe him. But here's the sad part of the story. The people of Israel forget these things. Even though it was such a great game and even though it was such a stomping on of the enemy, Israel forgets. We'll do the next two plagues next week. But with this one, I want to go quickly to Psalm chapter 78. Psalm 78 as we kind of close down. What does this mean for us? In Psalm chapter 78, and a lot of the Psalms, as they write these songs that people would sing, they write about what's happened in the past and how good God's been. But in Psalm 78, it's kind of a hard song, almost a a tragedy. Because as this song is written, what it's saying is, despite the fact that God did all these amazing things to rescue us, you know what happened? We forgot. And even though he wants to help us now, we don't remember that he's been so faithful and we abandon him for all the other things of the world, be it in Egypt or a Babylon or Black Friday that might give it to us. And we say, I'd rather have the things of the world and we forget his faithfulness and we don't follow him anymore. And so it's a really sad song in Psalm 78. Let's start reading from verse 43, it's actually talking about the things that we talked about today. Actually, I'll go back to verse 42, verse 42 of Psalm 70. It says they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. And it goes on and describes the plague of the firstborn. We're going to get into that next week because God's not done in Egypt yet. Here comes plague after plague after plague. And each one of those God is saying, look at this victory, Israel. Look at this victory. Look what I'm doing to win you. And he pulls them out of Egypt. And then what did they do? They forgot him. As we go through the scriptures, it's interesting because in reality, we deserve all those plagues. We don't deserve anything good. We don't deserve pie. We don't deserve eating popcorn at ball games. 
We don't deserve, we don't deserve because we've been sinful. We deserve God's wrath and His judgment and His punishment. But fortunately, God looked upon a people and said, I love them, I want to save them. And so He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh like us. And even though He did not deserve anything because He had never done wrong, God took Him and put Him on a cross after suffering Plague after plague after plague, like flogging, like mocking, like spitting upon, like being having his clothes ripped off his body. And he suffered under those plagues, even though he did not deserve it. And then he suffered by having his hands and his feet nailed to a cross, a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. Why? For no reason, except for God to say, I'm separating myself from the son because all of your sin is on him. And I'm distinguishing myself from your sin. And so there he was and he dies in our place and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with the utter plague of God's the father's wrath, he crushes his son and he dies. And it looks like utter defeat because it was. Because the scripture says by what Jesus did in suffering under those plagues. That he was buying victory for you. And he was rescuing you and he was saving you. If some of you have called upon his name and said, Lord, please save me, please forgive me from my sin. But unfortunately, like Israel, we leave that story of what he's done, having taken the plagues and rescued us from that place. And we walk on in life. And what do we do? It's a tragedy because we forget. And we walk back into the world and say, if I only had that device, that iPhone or that computer or that watch or that jewelry or that car or that this, I would be happy. If I only had better food at Thanksgiving, somebody cooked me better food. If I only had better clothes, if my face only looked better, then I'd be happy. God's like, you're forgetting. Where did one? Are you not satisfied with me? God is using these moments to give us stories from Israel's past and give us stories about Jesus to also remind us that Jesus, three days later, arose from the grave victorious over death because death cannot hold him. The gap was too far. He's too powerful. And he sits on high at the right hand of the Father right now. And the scripture says this, that looking forward, knowing that he will do what he said he will do, that one day Jesus Christ will break through the clouds and he will come as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But it says before that day that there will come plagues again. And it just may be as we look at Egypt and they might say, you know what, it's just sediment in the river. Our magicians can do that. You know what, it's just a disease that comes from flies. It's just this, it's just that. That people might be looking at the things that are going on in the earth right now and just saying. The temperature is just getting hotter. The fish are just dying all over the place. And just pass it off. Or try to save the world ourselves or whatever we're going to do. And the Lord might be saying, look, I am sending things upon the earth that I spoke about in the book of Revelation. Before Jesus comes. 
When the seventh bowl is put down in Revelation chapter 16, it says the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Verse 18 of of chapter 16, it says, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great, which is a description of all the world that is chasing after anything but God. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. That's his judgment. That's his punishment for those who are apart from Christ. And look at verse 20. And every island fled away and no mountains were, uh, were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for what? For the plague. For the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. God has promised that these things are coming. That that day of rescue is coming for us. And he has done all these things throughout history to keep our attention and say, I'm the Lord and there's no other. And look what I've done to rescue you. Don't go running away to anywhere else. Don't go try to hide in the world and your own flesh or anything that might seem to satisfy. Come to me. I'm going to save you. I'm going to trump the enemy. It's going to be no match. Because I want to display my great love for you. I want to display that I'm the good Lord. There's no other. You can't save you. Your talents can't save you. Your paycheck can't save you. Your grandma can't save you. Your pie baking can't save you. Nothing can save you but for Jesus. And he took the plague for us. So on the day to come, we wouldn't have to drink out of that cup of God's wrath. On that day, when the Lord comes back, He says he will deliver us to himself. And he will shepherd us and he'll take care of us. And I believe there will be holiday meals. When we'll remember how awesome he was when he stomped the enemy. And earned for us victory. Today, if you've recognized, oh man, I've just forgotten how good the Lord's been. In the midst of all the what seems like plagues and turbulence in my life, I just have forgotten how good he has been all along. Don't wait for Thursday to remember those things and give thanks. Today, come and give the Lord thanks. Remember what he's done in saving you, in removing your sin, and saving you, separating you into holiness with himself so that you could be with him today and forever. That's a good God who loves you. A good God that loves you.